managing microservices becomes a challenge as the number of services within the organization grows. With that many services, there comes an interdependency problem, downstream and upstream services that may be impacted by an update to your service. And one solution to this problem is a dashboard and newsfeed system that lets you see into the health and the changes across your services. With this kind of system, you can avoid accidentally shipping code that will impact other service owners. It can also help with testing, giving you an end-to-end picture for how a test can impact other services. Anish Dar and Ganesh Datta are co-founders of Cortex, a system for managing your services. Anish and Ganesh join the show to talk about their work building Cortex and the value it provides to the companies which use it. In a previous show, we covered a company called FX, which does something similar, and you can find more about that topic by searching for EFFX in the show catalog. You can find all of our episodes about microservices and other subjects by going to softwaredaily.com or subscribing to Software Daily, the podcast. Or you can go to softwaredaily.com and look for all those episodes and become a paid subscriber if you'd like. Paid subscribers get access to ad-free episodes. So if that's something you're interested in, go to softwaredaily.com. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Excited to be here. We're talking about Cortex today and management of quote-unquote microservices. And the first thing I'd like to discuss with you is that word that is so commonly discussed, and specifically deployments of microservices within companies. I'm sure you guys have talked to lots and lots of customers, lots and lots of potential customers, I'd like to know some misconceptions that you hear or see around deployments of quote-unquote microservices. What are the things that you think get talked about less than they should be talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that keeps popping up is like this misconception that, you know, microservices, or just generally from a service-oriented architecture, people tend to say like, oh, we don't have microservices. We don't do that here. It seems to be a pretty common thing where there's some kind of stigma against it today, I think, just because you know a lot of people have talked about the issues with microservices. And so people are like, oh, we don't have a microservice architecture here. And so then we're like, okay, is it more of a service-oriented architecture? And then I think people generally feel more comfortable with that description of their architectures. Because I think people tend to have this conception where like, oh, microservices mean there's this crazy proliferation of, of services, like almost like functions, like Lambda functions, stuff that just does a single thing. There's probably duplicates of that across the, the architecture. And so I think that's one of the things that we've heard. And another misconception, I think, is just generally like people confuse like, oh, are, if you're using Kubernetes, like does that automatically mean it's, like, it's a microservice architecture or something? Like the tooling and the architecture are two separate things. I think the, the tooling helps you deploy your microservices, helps you like manage and operate the stuff that you're building, but that isn't necessarily, is not like a one-to-one mapping with your actual architecture or the, or the design of your services. I think that's one thing that we tend to hear a lot as we do research. And it's interesting because I think even within like a big monolith, you have individual pieces that, you know, have specific owners and kind of have like their own logical component. And so I think what's interesting is that we found that you still have very similar service complexity problems that are up from, you know, having a large monolith and companies have to still figure out ways to define ownership and kind of separate the business logic between the teams who own them. 
Right. But I guess that business logic management is more feasible than it would be with the monolithic situation. And when you look at the companies that have been doing this for a pretty long time, maybe the the Netflixes of the world, the Airbnbs of the world, what is the gap in tooling or the gap in proficiency when you compare the elite companies, or I, I shouldn't use that word, but the companies who ha- have more experience doing this and the companies who are, are less experienced or who are trying to modernize their infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of stuff throughout the developer workflow. I think starting with just like how easy is it to spin up a service? Like are there templates, standardized templates within within the engineering organization that do all the right things? Like it hooks up to your log syncs, it has the right framework, the right versions of the framework, it has the right kind of documentation, or the readmes are, are, are standardized across services. So just basically from like the starting of the tooling, I think that's one thing that more mature organizations tend to do. Yeah, and coming from Uber, I think especially, you know, Uber built a lot of internal tools to help with, you know, managing managing services. And I think what you end up seeing is that a lot of established organizations like Uber and Airbnb and Atlassian, they end up building internal versions of Cortex to kind of help with service complexity. And I think the, the question that they keep trying to answer is, you know, how do you define what service quality is and actually scale that across, you know, your entire engineering organization? And they've built these really robust tools that become one of the most popular internal tools in the, within the company. Like Atlassian has this great tool called Microscope. And it basically is like a service registry, but also deeply integrated into their infrastructure. So it helps with things like service health and deployment. And it's really like the first place new engineers go to when they're trying to find information about a service or really just onboarding to the company. And I think what we've seen with some new organizations that are starting to see these problems, you really end up having to use like rudimentary tools like Excel sheets, confluence tables, kind of hacking together different things to kind of define what service quality means. And it then becomes challenging to keep that information up to date and actually remember to update it if things change about a service. And I think the reason for that really stems from like an organizational standpoint. Like the reason that organizations move to microservices or service-oriented architecture is because the monolith tends to slow down like velocity from a team level, like not necessarily from a technical standpoint. It's like how do individual teams deploy on their own cadence, build their own features, choose their own technology. And as a result, like the service, like different teams don't have visibility into other other teams. Like what are they what are they building? It's almost like looking into a void and saying, like, hey, as a team, like you own this domain, whatever you're building is just is just there. We assume it works. We we kind of know what it is. And I think these kind of tooling helps or like organizations understand, like, okay, these are the things that we're actually building. Here's what they do, here's the people to talk to them. And so I think they've built all this tooling around their service and architectures, not just from a technical standpoint, but also from an organizational standpoint. So I think that's definitely a huge, huge component of it. And then more from a technical standpoint, I think just stuff around like deployments. So if you have a whole bunch of services that depend on each other, how do you test that locally? Like, do you have mocked versions in your code base that you can test? Do you spin up an entire set of services locally? Do you have a dev environment where you can point your local services and that data gets blown away every now and then? Do you do like blue-green deployments, canary deployments? Like, How do you make sure that one service doesn't take down 20 different services? And so I think there's all this tooling around that that, that larger organizations, more mature organizations have been able to build out. So you guys have created Cortex, which is, I don't know how you describe it. What's your, what's your boilerplate pitch for it? Yeah, so Cortex is a tool for engineering teams to track and improve their service quality. 
we automatically catalog all internal services with their dependencies and then link it to accurate ownership information. That's usually linked to your identity provider like Okta. And then using that data, we can surface interesting insights to your team like team level SLA conformance or scorecards that let you really define what service quality means for your team. And I think the first question around that is the fact that this is something that is mostly going to be useful if everyone in the organization has adopted it. So you have these large organizations with heterogeneous models of managing their different services, and and this is a system where it'd be useful to know, for example, if I've deployed a breaking if I've deployed a breaking API change and your downstream your your service is consuming my service, it would be useful. You would like to be notified of that breaking change that I've deployed. So how do you easily get people throughout the organization to uniformly adopt Cortex? Yeah, you know, I think one of the interesting things we found is that different stakeholders in an organization have different priorities for what service quality means, right? Like your SRA team might have a set of guidelines that they adhere all services that they, all services need to meet to get SRE support. Your security team might have security policies that your services need to meet. And so what we found with Cortex is that we have this product called scorecards and scorecards at a high level are, they let you apply a set of rules to a group of services. And so what we found success with is, you know, like partnering with SRE teams who have very specific guidelines on what constitutes service quality. And then they institute it for, you know, the services that they work with. And basically from there, we let other teams kind of define what service quality means. And like the goal is that, you know, service quality is, should be this moving target that, continues to improve the services and lets different stakeholders kind of add to it. And so that's kind of how we get buy-in from different like pieces of an organization within Four Cortex. I think what's pretty powerful is like, so before this, I was at LendUp as a software engineer and I, I joined right when we split out the first service from the monolith. And I was there like as we built out a whole bunch of services, like a real service-oriented architecture. And one of the things that we realized is that we kept making the same mistakes over and over again in every service. Like the very first service that we pulled out was almost a clone of the monolith in terms of like infrastructure, tooling, monitoring, all that kind of stuff. And but as we started building out more services and like we had a DevOps team building out like our pass internally, we started doing a whole bunch of stuff like repeatedly, you know, things like, okay, are the logs being, uh, are they going into Sumo Logic? Do we have 500 alerts? Do we have 400 alerts? Do we have latency alerts? Do we have an on-call rotation? Like all these like basic things that a service needs to have for a team to, to reasonably operate that service. And so what we realized is that like a single team can build out this kind of like checklist, for example, within scorecards. And so they can apply that to the, just their services. Or like a security team can say like, hey, this is the tool we're going to use for a security audit. You need to answer these questions and we're going to use Cortex to track that across all our services. So you don't necessarily have to onboard everything into like into breaking API changes or the service catalog. It's like a tool for a single team to answer questions about other services. So I think that's what makes it pretty powerful is the, is the ability to really understand services. I think the service catalog portion of it is definitely more useful. You know, the more people that onboard it, the more people that are using Cortex across the organization, it's definitely more useful. But I think scorecards are where we can say like, hey, as a single team, like you can start getting value out of it. Okay, so two things, service catalog and scorecard. So service catalog, pretty easy to understand. This is, I can uh, scroll through all the different services that exist within a company. So I can know, does a billing service already exist? Or perhaps I know that I want to find the billing service. I want to know who's 
associated with it. I want to know recent deployments associated with it. Uh, that's pretty easy to understand. Tell me more about what the scorecard is. Yeah, so scorecards are basically like, let you define SLIs for your internal services. And so, for example, you know, one common use case that we are able to solve with scorecards is one of our companies, they used to have a, like a DevOps meeting every week when an engineer would go and compile a bunch of different heuristics for the services on their team. Like, you know, how many Jira incidents were there this week? Is there a GitHub repo still attached? Has it been deployed in the last three weeks? Checking SLAs for each of these services. And so that's a pretty time consuming task and is prone to a lot of errors because someone has to continuously go and update it. And so basically scorecards that you define these metrics and we directly link via read-only API keys to like things like New Relic or PagerDuty or even like looking into your Grafana dashboard for certain metrics. And so that way, basically, as soon as you open a scorecard, you're able to see a stack rank list of services and basically how they adhere to those quality metrics. Like each scorecard is given a set of points, like maybe 100, and each rule is given a weight within that uh, point system. And so basically for an engineer now, you don't have to go in and manually update this Excel sheet. Your services are just continuously tracked against these quality metrics that are automatically updated. And as new services are added to your team, they're automatically added to a scorecard as long as you know it's tagged with the appropriate team structure. So it's like a way to build these report cards. So like as a CTO, for example, I might care about like how many customer facing incidents do we have? Do we have any compliance issues that were filed this week? Um, like is our mean time to resolve holding up? And so like as a CTO, I might build this report card, but as an SRE, I might have a different scorecard. I might say like, hey, are there enough run books for every single service? And so because this is like pulled in real time, we can say we can catch services that are not conforming before something bad happens. And so like the reason in, in the first place that you, you have these tech ops meetings where people sit around and they, they look at these metrics and they like analyze their services because at the end of the day, what you care about is are my services reliable? Are they performing the way they're supposed to? And because if they're not, that's business impact. And so I think scorecards by building these report cards, you can say like, okay, these services are at risk. We can go in and fix the things that are making them at risk. And so hopefully we can prevent things from going bad, you know, in, instead of having to catch something after an incident. Um, so I think that's where scorecards really comes into the picture. Can you tell me more about what the process of deploying Cortex looks like? What is the adoption pattern for an organization who is adopting Cortex? Yeah, so we have a couple different ways to onboard. Uh, and this has evolved as we've sp spoken to more and more companies. Initially, that initially we basically looked into your APM tool. So if you're using New Relic or Datadog, we'd use the read-only API key to basically catalog all services and dependencies in one sort of onboarding flow. And then we have heuristics that basically map your services to the on-call rotations, to latency graphs, to the documentation. And we try to automatically do that using like naming heuristics and things like that. But by the end of the flow, basically, you have mapped your services to the data that represents them. And how Cortex works is that each service is represented in a YAML file, which contains all the metadata for that service. And then you would upload that to Cortex as part of your CI CD process. But other than APM tools, we also support, we have a Kubernetes integration. Um, and we even have like an Excel sheet integration for companies that had been tracking this already in Excel sheets. Yeah, and I think like the, the way it works is a single team can onboard to like just their services like we were talking about previously. And so as an individual developer within a team, I can go and onboard my services and start getting value out of it. And I think 
the the YAML file approach is like more of like a GitOps thing where ideally, you know, the onboarding flow walks you through this thing and you like you get a whole bunch of YAML files at the end for all your services. But over time, as you adopt Cortex as like a single source of truth, you would have this YAML file as, as part of your service template. So every time you spin up a new service, you would have this YAML file there by default. And so that way, like, you know, every time a new service is spun up, it, it's already in Cortex. So that's kind of where it ends up over time as an as a organization adopts Cortex more heavily. There have been a lot of service registry tools in the past as far as I know. What's been your experience assessing the wreckage of previous service registries, or, or, or is it okay to have duplicative functionality in a new service registry? So the, the kind of the story, it kind of gets into the story of like how we started Cortex in the first place, but I, when I was, was working at LendUp, we had a whole bunch of services that we spun up over the course of a couple of weeks, and I was looking for, hey, is there some way to like organize documentation for these services? And so I, I came up on Swagger for like API documentation. I'm like, okay, can I can I repurpose this for for service documentation? Didn't really seem to be a good way to do that. Like Swagger Hub was a way of compiling you know Swagger files for a whole bunch of services in a single dashboard, but nothing really about the service itself. It was more focused on the APIs. And then separately, you had like a, like machine readable service registry or service catalogs. And so those told you like, hey, these are all the services, but didn't tell you anything more than that. And so it didn't let you actually tag information about them. And then eventually I ended up trying like Hugo microsites or like static markdown files within the repo that got like published to a single place. But just setting all that up was a huge pain. And so then eventually I started looking for like, is there a human readable service registry? And so we actually didn't really find anything at the time when we started it. Um, I think there are a couple couple people like who are doing work working on that now, but at the time there was nothing really. And so we were like, hey, is there some way that we can make a human readable service catalog where the focus is around like as a person, as an engineer, I want to answer the questions about like who should I talk to if the service goes down? You know, where is the documentation for the service that a, like a machine readable service catalog doesn't really give you? And so that's kind of where Cortex really came from. Yeah, and and to kind of touch upon your point about maybe why catalogs haven't been so successful in the past, I think what we found is that you know the service catalog alone isn't enough, right? To really ingrain yourself in like the cultural process of a company, I think it's what you do with the data that you put into the service catalog and how useful you make that for engineers and for managers. And so that's kind of the approach we've taken with something like scorecards. And then also some of the integrations that we have specifically for engineers, right? Like as an engineer, when I push code, I'm thinking, is my code going to break any number of other services? That's like a cognitive overhead you have to keep track of as an engineer. And so like, and we have like a GitHub integration that will comment on your PR and tell you like, hey, this API change is going to break these three other services and here are the owners. And so I think it's more than just a service catalog. It's also about how can we present that information to engineers when like they face service complexity the most in their day-to-day jobs what are the biggest engineering problems that you've had to overcome when developing cortex yeah i think one of the things is just like third party integrations it's always a challenge you know obviously you have like rate limits and things like that so how do we how do we integrate our with third parties in such a way that we can make the right number of API calls. Uh, we're not getting rate limited when we like, evaluate your scorecards and things like that. I think that was definitely one challenge. But overall, I think from an engineering standpoint, it's been it's been pretty straightforward. I think most of the challenge has really been just understanding like customer use, like how they use the product. You know, for the most part, it's like all driven from these YAML files. So, like the integrations there with like GitHub, you know, breaking API changes was an interesting challenge. Like how do we detect like breaking API changes? You know, things that are like backwards inc- incompatible. So if you change something that's 
nullable to not nullable in a request uh, in a request body. Like, that's a breaking change. How do we detect that sort of stuff? The challenges are mostly in like figuring out how does that integrate with the rest of the flow. So to be honest, like not that many like you know tough engineering challenges in building the product itself. Yeah, more of a kind of product design set of challenges. Yeah, like understanding like from our perspective, like it, what's what's ironic is that you know Cortex is a monolith. Like we built it as a monolith. You know, I think that's the right way a startup should do it, just from the early days. And eventually, once you realize like hey, here are the things that are logically separate, you start pulling those out into 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 services. And so because we're so like we're building this thing in a monolith, we had to step out and say like, hey, you know, in our old days, in the days when we were actually building like working on services, what are the challenges we faced? And so we went through all these like different like, sessions where we say like, hey, what are all the tools a person uses during their you know daily engineering workflow? You know, how do they use those tools? And so trying to map that and understand really like what are the what are the root causes of service complexity? Like that, I think that's where the most of the challenge has been for us, um, as opposed to, like the actual engineering engineering work. And have there been any emergent problems that you can solve for people, like things that you didn't anticipate or things that even people didn't anticipate until you started giving them this tool that is sort of the service catalog plus scorecard, this oversight into all the different microservices, any emergent problems that that people realize, oh, you can solve with this tool? Yeah, I think like one of our customers is actually using it for contract testing. And so like they have this whole effort internally where they wanted to make sure because they have an external facing API, they wanted to make sure that, you know, none of the changes they're making internally or externally are breaking that contract. And so one thing that, I, that I've heard a lot about recently is like contract testing. How do you make sure that your services are conforming to a predefined contract? And so because we have this breaking API change detection, they can say like, hey, we don't have to spend time spinning up a whole contract testing suite. We just have to pipe in the API documentation into Cortex and Cortex will tell us if something's breaking. And so I think that's a really p- powerful tool. Um, separately from that, like security audits, you know, we build scorecards like a service quality thing, but we heard like, hey, why don't we use this for security audits? Can we make sure that, you know, vulnerability scans are being piped into Cortex? Can people answer questions about their services from a security standpoint? And so as an SRE team or a security team, I can go through and say like, hey, these are the services that are at risk. You know, they might have security vulnerabilities from our third party security, uh, like vulnerability scanners. Uh, you know, the audit hasn't completed for these services. And so I think there's some interesting use cases there for sure. Yeah, and, uh, and just to quickly add to that, I think what's also interesting is that, you know, we originally built Cortex for microservices, but we found that many customers actually start representing, you know, non-network services in Cortex, you know, things from like Kafka consumers, even simple libraries, any module really with an owner. And I think that really extends the use case as well, because I think you start to see a lot of the same problems emerge for really any like logical entity with the owner. Uh, it's just easy to start tracking with Cortex and it's like a world of difference, like searching through data on our platform versus, you know, Excel sheets or Confluence tables where you just can't really search through APIs or owners or even like documentation. And so that's also been pretty interesting to see. Yeah, that's a great point. Like even one thing we didn't expect going in was like monoliths. Like within a monolith, you would think that because all the code is in one place, it's easier to keep track. But as, as a monolith matures, I think within the monolith, you end up with these like logical modules. Like you might have a section of the code base that just does payments, you might have a section of the code base that does like identity. And naturally over time, the teams even get split up into those domains. Uh, so even within a monolith, you have that logic. And so we've seen people use Cortex to, to define the boundaries within a monolith. So you can say like, hey, within, like, within this monolith for this payments code base, 
this is the team that owns it. Here are the people that, that are part of it. Here's a documentation for it. And so it's really, we've seen people use it for like just logical modules, the things that do certain things, like not necessarily just microservices or network services, as Anish said. So that's been a really cool use case that we didn't really expect going in. I'd like to talk a little bit more about deployments. So let's say my company is entirely instrumented with Cortex and some service, internal service, deploys a new version. What happens? Uh, What do I see in Cortex and what's going on along the stack? Yeah, so you can actually push in information about deploys. So you can see like, hey, this is like the latest deploy for the service. Um, And the cool thing is like, for example, if you get alerted for a service, we can actually send you those deploy information. Like, hey, here's a list of services that just got deployed recently. Here are the latest deploys. Here are the commits and stuff like that. I think you could, the other cool thing is you also see your scorecards update. So you might have a rule that says like, hey, because we're following 12 factor, we need to be doing frequent deploys. And we want we have a rule that says, hey, this service must have a deployment within the past three weeks. So immediately you'll see that scorecard update. You'll see like, hey, this service that was not deployed recently, it now has a deploy. So it's no longer at the bottom of the, of the stack rank. It's, it's a little higher up now. And so like there's a whole bunch of things that gets triggered as, as the function of a deploy. And so like that's one of the cool things that scorecards does is, you know, like, yes, it's cool to know that, hey, we deployed a service, but what does that really mean? And so because with a scorecard, you can say like, hey, a deploy is actually an important thing from an organizational standpoint. We care that we're doing deploys recently. You can build a rule on that and have those rules update. And so that's one of the things that you can do with deploys. And how is that information being fed back into Cortex, like during during a deployment? How is there some kind of observer pattern going on? Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways. Like one is like a webhook where you would push that data in to Cortex. So we have an external facing API where you can push in custom data to build rules on for your scorecards. So for example, like vulnerability scans, you might want to push in data from your CI pipeline about vulnerabilities. And so that's one example. Deploys, we have a separate webhook for deploys, but you can even push in like separate data about that. Another thing that we do is like third-party integration. So if you have information um, like if you have a Heroku integration, for example, we can hook into Heroku, get the information from there. Or if you have, if you're using a different tool that has an API, we tend to prefer pulling data from the source of truth directly, because our our theory is that hey, like Cortex should be this layer that sits on top of your existing tools. We aggregate information and we give you new context that you didn't have before. And so if you have Heroku handling deploys, then really that is your source of truth about deploy information. So give us access to Heroku with a read-only API key. Let us pull that information from Heroku directly. Or if you have you know, a different service that, that has that information, we'll pull it directly from there. But if you don't have a source of truth, then we'll try to pull it. You know, you can push that information into Cortex. So that philosophy really, you know, it goes across Cortex everywhere. So it's like on-call rotations, page duty is a source of truth. Let us get it from there. So like, where can we pull that information? So that Cortex is not, the, you know, the single point of failure. We're actually pulling it in from where that data should live in the first place. And so deploys is just another thing where we do that. What about tests? How do tests interact with Cortex? Yeah, so I think, like, you know, as I mentioned previously, contract testing can be replaced with Cortex. Uh, you can push in like coverage information. So like within scorecards, you might want to report on like, hey, like all, do all our services have 80% coverage or something like that? Because I think one of the things that we've seen is that, you know, as part of your CI process, some companies that care about coverage sometimes put like a hard stop, like you have to hit 80% coverage until this thing can be merged in. And 
what happens is people end up writing all these really funny tests just to push the coverage above a certain limit, which I don't think is really valuable in the long run. So as part of your as your part of your testing process, you might generate a code coverage report, and you can push that into Cortex and build a scorecard on top of it. So instead of having like a gate on your in your, in your on your pull request, you can say like, hey, show me all the services that don't have good code coverage. So from there, it's more of like a cultural thing. So instead of having that that gate, you can say like, hey. You know, as a service owner, if my service is at the bottom of this list and it's because my coverage is bad, I'm probably going to go in and fix that because it's like a cultural element to that. And so that's kind of where it fits into that like testing pipeline. Yeah. And, and what's really cool is, you know, we're releasing this feature pretty soon, but we're actually starting to track the historical data of all the metrics that you start to push into Cortex. And so for a per service level, you can see how is my code coverage changed over time and even alert if like it goes under a certain rule boundary, you'll get like an email or a Slack message. And so we really want you to be able to understand the quality of things like, you know, test coverage over time and, and try to improve it. And like one of the companies we work with, like every day during standup, they'll pull up their, you know, test coverage for like their lowest performing services and just check, you know, has it been going up over time? Another thing is like flaky tests. Like I know when we, when at LendUp, we had this monolith, right? And so flaky tests was a huge problem. There was a lot of, it was a like a FinTech company. So a lot of date time related stuff, we were like moving through time. And so a ton of flaky tests. Um, so one of the things you might care about is like, hey, what percentage of things that were merging in have flaky tests or like the check suite fails. And so you could like imagine building a rule on top of that as well. You can say like, hey, if the percentage of, of failed commits is above a certain threshold, then flag that. And so Flake, that's a, that's, that might be a good way of catching flaky tests. You can say like, hey, if 60% of our commits are failing, then that might be because they're flaky tests on master. Um, so that's another way of reporting on top of that. And what about CICD workflows? Anything to add about what Cortex does in interactivity with CICD? Yeah, so I think like deploys, like you said, is one thing. So you can push information on, on deploys. You might do like the breaking API changes. So we don't really hook into CI workflows necessarily, but you might integrate with Cortex for those things, like breaking API change detection, vulnerability scans that you run every time, like on every commit as a part of your CI/CD, uh, as you want to push that data in. So that kind of information would go into Cortex. And I think the cool thing, again, is like, this is not something we really thought about. Like, I don't, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything interesting that you might want to report on with the CI/CD process. But because like Scorecards has this like, it's almost like a rules language. Like it's like a pluggable engine where you can plug in different integrations. And so if a customer comes to us and says like, hey, we want to have information about our CI process, then we can they can push that that information in. But as of right now, apart from like breaking API changes and like the custom data you can push in, there's not really that many integrations with with CI. Let's talk a little bit about the engineering behind Cortex. Can you describe the stack of technologies? Yeah, for sure. So we're using uh, Spring Boot and Kotlin on the back end, uh, React TypeScript on the front end, and then a Postgres back end. We've deployed on GKE, and that's pretty much the stack end to end. We use Doku and DigitalOcean for a while, like as we're getting spun up, uh, which is pretty easy to just to deploy things. On. And we're still using it for our demo uh, deployments. So we have like a demo box that we call where we push like a demo version of our product that we you know give to co potential customers. We you know we send to people saying like, hey, go play around with this. And so that right now we actually just have on like this Doku, which you know for for people that are, that are not familiar with is just like a open source Heroku equivalent that you can deploy. It's like Dockerized. You can just deploy on on like an empty VM. And so we have that on DigitalOcean, which we hope to eventually bring into GKE. We hope to like use Terraform and stuff, but nothing nothing really mature on that front. But the actual code, uh, you know, as I said, the Kotlin TypeScript, we're definitely very strong on types. I think it comes from like the fact that me and another co-founder, we came from like fintech backgrounds, 
And so we have definitely understood the pain of like, you know, catching issues early because any small buck can result in like compliance issues, regulatory issues. So we definitely like our types. So TypeScript has been actually a huge, huge improvement in our workflow, I think, just being able to catch bugs ahead of time uh, in TypeScript. And we've definitely run into this. Like you know, a lot of people say like, oh, you can, you know, static typing helps you catch this stuff. And we've definitely seen it over and over again where, you know, in one data type, it might be called ID. Another thing, it might be called service ID. And if you're not keeping track of that, you can easily have a bug that you, that you don't catch until, you know, until you're in production. And so TypeScript has definitely helped us catch those kind of things ahead of time, um, which has been extremely helpful. And what about the the hosting or the the cloud provider of choice? Yes, we're using GCP and GKE just for like we don't want to be locked into a single provider. Postgres on the back end, so we're using uh, Cloud SQL for that. But we really only have a single service hosted on GKE right now. We're using Firebase uh, for static site hosting. I did look into like cloud into cloud storage for that, like whether we could do like static buckets and just point like uh, a domain to that and use use it for static hosting. But even I think the GCP recommends Firebase for static website hosting. So our React app is entirely just on Firebase. And then we use like GitHub Actions for our CI process just because the integration was so simple uh, with, our, with our GitHub workflows. Has Firebase gotten pricey for you? So that, I think the static hosting itself is pretty cheap. We don't use any other APIs apart from static hosting. Um, and so that's been relatively cost cost effective. I think it's definitely more expensive than it would have just to spin up like a single container or something uh, with like an Nginx, you know, with static files. But the ease of use is so simple. Like the, like just point your DNS to their servers and everything is good to go. And obviously because of like you know startup GCP credits, like it's not too much of a concern at this point. But overall, it's been pretty cost effective actually. So I'm a little curious about the competitive landscape. I've talked to uh, Buoyant. For, for several years uh, as they've uh, expanded from from just Linkerd to uh, thinking more about this uh, service catalog, service management side of things. I talked to FX, who I think is more of a direct competitor. And I guess the first question around competition is, I think, the differences in taste. Do you have any... I'm sure you've seen the competitive landscape. Are there any notable distinctions in your positioning of what you're trying to do with the product? Or do you think it's just kind of a feature for feature dogfight? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so the first thing I'll say is I think it's really great that there's a couple smaller competitors. I think what's interesting is we all started around the same time. It's interesting how that works. But I think it's really good that there are multiple people working on this problem. Because if you think about the ecosystem for microservices, there have been so many tools built for the technical problems that come with services. But I think you're starting to see that organizations are starting to face some of the, you know, the organizational challenges of using services. And so I think all of us are tackling that range of problems. I think where we differ specifically is, you know, I haven't used like Dive or, or FX personally, but I think on FX's front, I think they're a little bit more focused on the incident response space, right? Like there's so many different pieces in a service when you get alerted, uh, being able to see like a timeline of your events. I think that's a definitely a valid value proposition. I think where we differ is that we're really focused on service quality. And so that kind of goes back to scorecards, being able to define what service quality means for your team. And that really just goes back to our time as engineers, where, you know, especially at Uber, I think one of the most frustrating things for me was that the quality between services was very inconsistent. And I think that ultimately led to the, the, the biggest challenges from an en- like an engineer perspective, but also from a management perspective, just getting like an, a report of your services and how they're conforming to those standards. 
And so that's kind of an area that we're really diving deep into and focusing on with, with like scorecards and, and kind of experimenting what we can do with there. Yeah, I think the, the, obviously the, the common point across all is like the service catalog. I think that's as engineers, I bet like the founders of those other companies also felt the same thing. Like, hey, I don't even know what services we have. Like that's just like the common problem thing we all had. And I, I think as we like go deeper into that problem, as Anish said, we found like different aspects to that. And so we all started with the service catalog, but it's like now, okay, now that we have that information, what can we do with it? And I think FX is like, okay, we can, we can improve your incident response. We can show you this timeline. We, you know, we're focused on service quality. So it's really like, how do we take information about your services and make it more useful to these organizations? And I think that that perspective on service quality is something that, that makes us a little different. And I think separately, just from like a technical standpoint, I think we're really focused on like the GitOps style approach where like everything's defined in this YAML file. You know, it's not really like, we do have an editor in the UI, but it's mostly focused on like, hey, like check in this YAML file to your, to your Git repo. That's the real source of truth and like upload that to Cortex. Like that approach I think is a little bit different um, from the other people in the space. Um, I think that's just an approach that, that we took just like we, we heard it a lot from some of the people that have built this out, like mature organizations like Atlassian and, um, and Zendesk and stuff like that, where they have taken this YAML approach. And I think engineers tend to find like some comfort in that saying like, hey, this information is owned by us. It's version controlled. It's checked into Git. You know, we're the real source of truth. And Cortex is just like this aggregation layer on top of that. So I think that's one like technical difference that we have uh, compared to some of the other players. Yeah. And then also, I think a lot of other products are a lot more focused on like the service complexity you face as a manager, right? Like the audit report, I think is something that a couple other people do as well. But I think where we also differ is, you know, we've found that service complexity also lives with the engineer, right? And it's kind of going back to, as an engineer, you have to think about, is my code going to break any other number of services? Or when I get alerted for a service, you know, do I have all the context for that service uh, that I'm working with? And so in that regard, we built very specific integrations that individual engineers can take advantage of, you know, with GitHub or with PageDuty or Opsheny. And so you kind of have these two suite of products where you have products for service complexity for engineers, but then also for like managers and above who need like auto reports and kind of service quality reports uh, for their team. Yeah, and I think, I think now that you mentioned that, like one, one interesting thing, I think the, the difference is almost that we are focused on like before something going wrong. Like, can we help you understand things like they're at risk before something goes wrong? And I think some of the other players are like, if something goes wrong, here's all the information that can help you fix it faster. And so I think those are two very valid problems and two problems that as engineers, we've all felt time and time again. So I think we're almost like taking this fork in the road where it's like, can we help you understand issues with your services before they go wrong? Whereas like, as opposed to let's help you fix those services once something's wrong. And what has been the competitive discussion with your customers? Like, have there been any customers who have multiple of these things deployed internally? Is it is it that mature of a market? Or it still feels like a pretty nascent market where probably if you're talking to a company and you're saying, hey, uh, try out Cortex, please. Uh, they're saying, okay, this thing looks cool. Like we don't have any, we don't have anything like this internally. Let's let's go for it. Has it gotten to the point where you have multiple of these things deployed and they can't talk to one another, and you have the the real um, uh, kind of um, battle for for different service management systems? Yeah, no, that's a great question. No, I, to be honest, we haven't seen that really. I think it's a, a very early market. The biggest competition is just the internal tools that companies build themselves. And I think, you know, 
it's just been by force so far because there really hasn't been a great replacement for that. And it's not really the core competency for a lot of the companies that, you know, have, have been forced to build it internally. And so I think it's, it's still a really early market. I think everyone is still trying to figure out what is the right application of, you know, service complexity that will resonate with, you know, everyone who has services. And so I think, yeah, we, ha- we really haven't seen a situation where we've spoken to a company and they're, you know, already deeply in- ingrained with our competitor or something like that. It's usually just really fighting like Excel sheets and internal tools. And I think I think the reason for that is just because you know it, it is a totally new market. I think Anish mentioned earlier, but like there's been this whole suite of, of tools for the technical challenges of service-oriented architectures, right? You have like the data docs and new relics, the Splunks, uh, API gateways, all the stuff to really help you deal with the technical challenges of microservices and service-oriented architectures. But I think like this whole crop of like us and our competitors came around this time where it's like, hey, most of the challenges, like the technical challenges are pretty much solved. Like, yeah, there's things we can do to make it better. Like deployments can be easier and all that. But for the most part, like there's a ton of tooling out there. But now it's like, hey, we, we made this transition you know, as a whole, as an engineering community towards the service or architecture. And now because we have fixed the technical challenges, all these like organizational challenges are being exposed. And so a lot of companies are still in the mindset like where they're starting to realize this, they're just starting to face it. And so I think as a result, it's more of a convincing them like, hey, this is the right way to solve the problem as opposed to like we're the right tool as opposed to other tools. It's been more of like education almost like saying, like, hey, the service catalog that does all these things is going to make your life easier. Um, so it's always been like more of that educational component than anything. When you look at the tools that have been built internally, at some of these companies. So you mentioned Atlassian. I know Airbnb has built one of the... I think a lot of these companies build some kind of news feed for services internally. It seems like there's got to be a gap between what you can build for the masses and what kinds of quality you can get out of some tool that's built internally with all the nuances of the custom deployment infrastructure and the custom this and the custom that of, you know, of a mature company. So is there any kind of compromise that you have to make when you are designing a a product that is sort of consumable by the masses as opposed to tightly coupled to mature infrastructure? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the things that we keep hearing is like, hey, how do we make sure this thing is going to stay up to date? Because, you know, when when a tool, like an internal tool is so tightly coupled and so tightly integrated with their existing tooling, it can get a lot of information automatically it can, you know, like ACL stuff. You can, if, if you already have tooling for ACLs, you can probably figure out like, hey, if somebody has access to the service or these APIs, then it, they might be owners of the service. Or if you have a more, even more mature organization where you're saying like, hey, I need, my service needs to have access to this, to this other service and that service has access to another service, you can start to figure out the dependency graph. So there's all these things that you can figure out just because you have all this internal tooling, you might have like access to infrastructure, right? So if you have like a pass internally where Microscope Atlassian does, you can get all kinds of information from the pass that you can push into like their version of scorecards. Like, hey, this service does not have HTTPS. This service does not have enough replicas. And so that, that's the kind of stuff that you can get very easily if you have internal tooling and you're so tightly coupled with those tools. So I think what we need to figure out is like, can we get the stuff automatically? Can we reduce the friction for organizations that have their own internal tools? Can we fetch that information automatically? Can we reduce the friction of getting that into Cortex in some way? Because really that's the bottleneck, right? Like how do you convince somebody to say like, hey, all this information, like how do we pipe it into Cortex? And so I think that's where a philosophy of 
like integrating with third parties extremely heavily comes from. It's like, hey, you have all these internal tools. We can fetch that stuff like from you. Like it's not we're not as tightly coupled as these internal tools might be. So instead, we're gonna hook into your your third party tools and fetch all that stuff as as much stuff as we can. And so like, how do we reduce that friction in a way that feels almost like it might feel if you have an internal version of Cortex built out tightly coupled with your with your infrastructure. So I think that's really the biggest the biggest bottleneck is like the ease of use and the ease of getting that information into the tool. As you get more organizations with their company entirely instrumented around Cortex or Cortex is entirely woven into the company, what other kinds of things can you build on top of that? I think in the near future, like scorecards, the things we can do with scorecards are extremely interesting. Like we can do things from an organizational standpoint. Like we can say services are at risk. Like if a service has an octa group assigned with it, like, hey, these are the people that own the service and the service, like the team goes to zero because there's a reorg. Like that's now an orphan service. That's something that's an organizational risk, right? And so if we can alert you saying like, hey, this service now is owned by the billing team, but the billing team has zero people in it, we can flag that and say like, hey, you should go fix this. You might want to assign it to a different team. And so I think there's a lot of things we can do from an organizational standpoint. I think the near future is just really like, integrations can we really focus on security can we help security teams do audits in a more powerful way like can we in- integrate with snick for vulnerability audits uh, can we pull that kind of information and make it really powerful for that front um, so i think scorecards are really where we're going to be investing heavily in the near future and making that an extremely powerful tool from a technical standpoint from an organizational standpoint um, there's a ton of stuff that we can do on that front um, so i think that's that's pretty much what's coming up in the near future and I think making stuff more powerful from you know breaking API chain detections, like we already do, you know gRPC and Open API and GraphQL. Can we make that stuff even more powerful? You know, different kinds of API detection. Can we like how how useful is it in, in in replacing contract testing? What are other things we can replace that people are doing manually today with all this information that we've compiled about it? Can we integrate with tools like Blameless? Can we give you information? during incident response, during postmortems, that might make it more useful. I think those are all the different directions that it can go. But the near future is definitely scorecards. I think there's so much we can do with it. That's really exciting. What about pricing? How have you determined how to price Cortex? Yeah, so that's something we continue to iterate on. Right now, it's a combination of, you know, how many services and how many team members are in your org. And we kind of scale it up uh, from like, it's like, free for a certain number of users and services and then kind of goes up from there. But generally, I think for us right now, it's, it's really been over-indexed on like feedback and trying to get Cortex to a position where, you know, if we if you remove Cortex from your organization, you know, like all, all your engineers would really hate that. And so I think that's something that we're continuing to work on and just iterating on um, because we want it to be like one of the most valuable tools within your company, not just from a technical standpoint, but kind of going back to like the cultural significance of a tool like that, where it just you just start relying on it for all sorts of information around anything to do with the service. Yeah, you know, people always say like pricing is a dark art, and I think we've definitely come to realize that over time. Like we definitely we started out with like per service, per engineer. Like we've gone through all these iterations. I think we're still learning like how people use Cortex. And like, are, are there, is it mostly the dashboard? Is it the GitHub integrations? I think that's really going to drive the pricing model going forward. So it's really about learning, like, how do people, how do people use a product product overall today? Um, so that's been, it's been an interesting set of learnings for sure. Are there any opportunities around documentation or architecture mapping that you see? Yeah, definitely. I think, so we, 
right now we have like a dependency graph where you can see like, oh, these services depend on each other. Even at the API levels, you can say like, hey, this service depends on this particular API for another service. So that's a pretty rudimentary way of, of visualizing your architecture. I think one cool thing might be like architecture diagrams embedded within the YAML. So you have like all these markdown based architecture diagrams. So if you can embed that in your YAML file, then in theory, you could do architecture diagrams across services. So like this piece of the architecture diagram touches another function in this other service. And so you might be able to build these really complex architecture diagrams where I only have to maintain the diagram for my single service. I think that really comes down to, again, like as a service owner, I know the most about my own service. And so I should declare that. Whereas today in an architecture diagram, you have these like giant Drata.io files that are embedded in a Confluence page with like a hundred different services talking to each other. And I, if I want to go in and update this thing, I don't really know whether I should be touching a certain link between two services. Whereas with Cortex, you can say like, hey, my service depends on these other services. Here's the architecture diagram for my service. And because we have information about all your services, we can compile that into this like living, breathing architecture diagram for your services. So that's something we actually thought about that I think might be very, very powerful. Yeah, and you know, one of the things we're also working on to kind of make it more live is like, you know, if we if we detect there's a bad deploy or like you break a rule in the scorecard, you know, that we'll like change the color of the two links between services to red or something like that. And so you kind of get this live view of your architecture and how it's behaving over time, which I think is a pretty powerful tool just from a visualization standpoint. You mentioned earlier the benefit of having worked in fintech a little bit earlier. Are there any other previous experiences you have that have shaped how you are architecting and designing Cortex and the company? Yeah, I think there's definitely a few things. Like when I when I joined LendUp, it was a it was a massive monolith. I mean, the monolith never really went anywhere during my time there. We pulled out a whole bunch of stuff, and you know, when I first started there, I was like, oh man, this monolith is so painful. Like it, it is slowing us down. It's becoming, it's a real challenge to develop in. But over time, I kind of realized like why do organizations have these models in the first place? It's because when you're moving fast, it's easy to build things within the context of your existing code base. It's, just the, it's like the, it's the unfortunate truth, but it just makes your, it makes your life much faster. As a consequence, your data models tend to become very tightly coupled. And so that's one thing that we're keeping a close eye on is like making sure our data models are not tightly coupled as much as we can um, we're not reaching in like we have like good abstractions from a service service level. So we have all these abstractions uh, within the code base where you know if one part of the code base wants to talk to GitHub, for example, for integration, that is abstracted away in, in through like a service abstraction. So that way, if we want to pull out a third party integration into its own service one day, we can do so. And that service maintains its own like data models. Everything is is pretty pretty packaged in some sense. So that's something we learned definitely over time because. Because we were in fintech, we had like all these. We had like payment, you know, payment schedules. Like if, if you're paying off a loan, you had the schedule. You had like the actual balances. You had all these different things about a user. That as it became tightly coupled, like a bug in one place affected a whole bunch of other things. And so like obviously the risk is not as high for us today. But you know, le- taking those learnings and building it in a way that we can set ourselves up for success when it becomes more and more complex, which I think it will be. Like as we build out these rules, like every rule in the scorecard has a set of complexity with it. So building that out has been, having those abstractions, I think is gonna make our lives much easier down the road as we wanna pull things out into more self-contained components. So that's definitely one of the things we learned. Another thing, as I mentioned, is like type safety, you know, like numeric things, like, or as we're building these rules, like having type safety has been extremely powerful. 
and I, I don't think it's, it's as important for us as it might have been in our previous jobs, but I think because we're used to that, because we think in that mindset of like, hey, let's def- let's think about the types first, let's think about the API shapes, let's think about what it looks like, and then go build it. That workflow has been extremely useful for us, especially now because of COVID. You know, like it's, we were all remote for quite a while, and so being able to sit down, like having that ingrained in our workflow, saying like, hey, what do the types look like? Can we define the shapes first and then go build the implementation? Helps us actually as we were remote, do things in, in a more streamlined manner. Like, okay, hey, I can define the types, then we'll split up the work. And so we're not really affected from like not being in the same place. We don't really need those like ad hoc conversations as much as we're building things. And so because we, you know, came from this fintech background and we liked, you know, type safety, that has directly affected our ability to work better as a, as a remote first organization um, as we were during COVID. So it was an like, un- unexpected thing, but turned out to be you know, pretty, pretty positive. What would you guys be working on if not Cortex? You want to take this one? We we worked on a couple of things in our in our past lives. Yeah, yeah. No, we've we've built a lot of. I mean, Cortex is not our first try at building a startup. I think it was the first time we individually felt the pain point, and so it was pretty pretty like good uh, project to work on. I think in the past, you know, we've we've tried all sorts of things. We we started a real estate company where we bought fractional shares of real estate and, and sold it to our friends and family. We've attempted a meme company that was short very short-lived uh but i think yeah it, it just kind of so goes did you say a meme company yes yeah, yeah yeah we did attempt a meme company yeah i think for anyone out there who's listening to this it was basically around like discovery of memes i think you know we we have all this proliferation of like facebook groups today like where you know like the like the zoom memes like the, the college memes and stuff and it's so hard to find good memes on on facebook you know like the the only way for me to find them is to be added to a group and i'm like okay this is a great group that i think is is, is funny and I don't think it's a good way of discovering new memes today. Like Instagram Explorer is kind of on that page, on the front, but it, it's kind of muddy. So we were trying to come up with this like newfangled idea where you could discover memes that you enjoy with different topics and stuff. And so it was it was short lived. I think mostly because we're not a our consumer consumer app chops were a little weak, and we came upon Cortex as we were working on the meme app, and it definitely hit closer to home. And so we we pivoted. To Cortex uh, pretty early on in that in the life uh, life cycle of that of the Mew app, but I, I I still think there's something out there for the app. I, I I do really believe there's there's a Mew app out there waiting to be built. All right, guys. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you about Cortex. Anything else you want to add? No, it's been, it's been great talking to you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. 